Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy and I'm Spreeman. I'm Leslie. And tonight, we're starting a new episode series called Twisted Scriptures. More about that in just a second. But first, we'd like to share with you um, one listener comment that was left on our website. And this listener says, Glad you asked episode on March 22nd was so helpful to me. You answered at least three questions I had concerning certain issues that I needed biblical answers to. Yay. Um, you two are the best. Aw. That's too kind. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't thank you enough for your biblical, uncompromising stance on the issues of our time. That's so sweet. It is. And thank you so much for your kind words of encouragement. You know, we're always glad you asked, but uh, we're we're always glad you answer too. We would love for you to answer any of our episodes with a, a comment of your own about what you learned or maybe how you were encouraged or maybe just a part of the episode that you especially liked. That's right. And lest you think we're asking you to do these things for the sake of feeding our egos, let me assure you, we're not. I mean, leaving a positive comment or review and a five-star rating helps bump us up in all the podcast algorithms, which, bottom line, means that it gets the gospel and sound the sound doctrine of a word fitly spoken into the ears of more people who need that. So please take a few seconds to click those five stars and to leave a sentence or two long review. When you do that, you're helping us spread the good news of the gospel all over the world. That is right. And Sound Doctrine is just what's on the agenda tonight. Like Michelle said, tonight is part one of a new series we are starting called Twisted Scripture. And you've probably seen people using popular Bible verses out of context on social media, or maybe you've seen it on a Christian t-shirt, or maybe even in church or your Bible study class. Many of us have. You know, over the course of this series, we're going to take some of those popularly twisted verses straighten them out and put them back where they belong in context so we can see what they really mean. That's right, Amy. We want to do what 1 Timothy 2.15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And one of the ways that we rightly handle the word of truth is to handle it in context. So we're going to be showing you a lot of scripture tonight so you can understand the context of these verses. You might want to get your Bible out and follow along. Okay, let's start getting those scriptures untwisted. Amy, what's our first twisted scripture? Well, Michelle, we're going to start with two verses that say exactly the same thing. Psalm 105.15 and 1 Chronicles 16.22. And those two verses say, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. Now, these two passages are often taken out of context so that they can be used as some sort of a a self-defense weapon by some people against uh, those who are helping Christians discern a particular leader or author or conference speaker who might have some red flags in his or her teaching. Or maybe this leader is a full-blown wolf in sheep's clothing who we need to mark and avoid because they are deceiving Christians. And uh, the person who might speak up about this is often met with these verses. And I can tell you, ladies, Michelle and I have both had this happen to us 
a lot. <laughs> so, touch not my anointed is uh, in scripture, and uh, it has a specific meaning. Who are these anointed ones? Well, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, the Israelites, were set apart from other nations, and there were special ceremonies for certain leaders in which oil was used to consecrate or set apart someone for a particular purpose. Now, the three positions that were anointed were prophets, priests, and kings. For example, King David was anointed with oil when God set him apart as king, and all the Old Testament priests were also anointed with oil, and Elisha the prophet was anointed with oil. Now, we don't see much about anointing in the New Testament. Jesus, Jesus, of course, is the final prophet, the great high priest, and the eternal king. Now, a little bunny trail here, uh, if you will allow me here. There has been, in recent times, a movement in Christianity we talk about here on the program called the New Apostolic Reformation, which, of course, is a false teaching that says we can have anointed prophets today. Well, that's just not true, ladies. No one today is supposed to be downloading fresh new words from God for the church. The canon of scripture is closed, and the only prophets we should be following are the ones we read about in scripture. But I digress. So why did God write, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm? Well, because these verses are about God protecting the Israelites from oppression by foreign kings when they were wandering in the wilderness. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm is a warning to the pagan nations to leave God's people, all of them, the common people as well as the prophets, alone during the Exodus. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that people are taking this verse and twisting it into a sharp, pointy stick to use as a weapon. Oh, boy. And you may not have had this happen to you, or maybe you have as you've tried to warn someone about a particular false teacher. But instead of saying, wow, thanks so much for warning me that this teacher is a voracious wolf or a deceiver, no, no, he or she instead begins to accuse you of touching God's anointed, the anointed ones being the false teacher, after God told you not to do that. So now you're sinning and disobeying God. How dare you speak out against any church leader as if these leaders are untouchable? How dare? Don't, do you see how twisted that is? In reality, you are being obedient to scripture by helping Christians avoid being deceived. Uh, Michelle, you have a wonderful article on your blog about this that we're going to link in the show notes, but uh, I really like how you ended it, so I'm going to read that last paragraph that you have there in your article. It says this, Today, no New Testament believers are anointed to any position, but we are all spiritually anointed or set apart to and for Christ as his special possession. Amen. We are to submit to our pastors and elders insofar as they teach and obey God's written word, but never, quote, challenge or speak out against God's anointed. Well, only if the anointed one you're talking about is Jesus himself. Michelle, I just love that. Uh, anything else you wanted to add? I think you pretty much said it all. I, I would just say that, um, you know, I noticed you were talking about the New Apostolic Reformation and how they particularly have twisted this scripture. And one of the things that I've noticed as we've been putting together this episode and preparing for the next one and everything 
is that so many of these scriptures that we're addressing are are ones that have been twisted by uh, the New Apostolic Reformation or the Word of Faith movement, the Prosperity Gospel, and and things like that. And it's just interesting to me how many of their doctrines, well, really false doctrines, are built on scriptures that they have twisted. We yes. always want to be sure that when we are um, when we are thinking about doctrine, looking at doctrine and things like that, that those doctrines are based on in context, rightly handled scriptures, not twisted scriptures like some of these other movements are using. So when you when you base your doctrine on twisted scripture, your doctrine is going to be false every time. So exactly. Yeah, that's all that I would add. All right. The next scripture we'll be untwisting tonight is John 10, 27. I really had a good time studying this. I really have had a good time studying for all of these verses. It's Me just so, too. you know, I was telling you a little rabbit trail you were talking about earlier. I, I was telling my husband earlier today, I said, you know, I have had such a good time looking at these scriptures and straightening them out because when you look at them in context and you you read what they're really actually saying, it is so much more beautiful and meaningful yes. and deep and touching and helpful than the way that these these false doctrines and, and false teachers have twisted them. So and this is another one of those. This is John ten twenty seven. So let's read that. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And really, we're just going to be dealing with that first, basically one third of the verse, because that's the part that gets twisted most of the time. Now, a lot of evangelicals take this verse to mean that if you're a Christian, you'll hear God speaking to you audibly or in some sort of still small voice in your heart or whatever. And so what I would like to point out from the get go, without even studying this verse or taking it, you know, looking at it in context or anything like that, is that while they take the the quote, hear my voice part of that verse literally they do not take the, quote, my sheep part literally. You ever notice that? None, uh-huh. of these, none of these folks say that Christians are four-legged, woolly animals who eat grass and say, bah, you know. And if I could, I would just ask them why. Why do you take the my sheep part figuratively, but not the hear my voice part? If the sheep part is figurative, isn't it at least possible that the hear my voice part is figurative too? One thing we need to understand right here, this is a good example of it, and we'll probably use this this principle again as we're looking at other twisted scriptures, but we need to understand the difference between the words literal and figurative. Literally does not mean figuratively, and it's not just like a turbo boost attachment that we (laughs) add for emphasis and impact, okay? It just drives me crazy when people do that. If you say, I literally lost my mind, I'm going to call the funeral home and start looking around on the floor for your brain because that sentence literally means that your brain has literally left your skull and you are literally unable to locate it. That's what that sentence means. Don't use the word literally when you mean figuratively, okay? But it's so much fun, Michelle, and my brain has left my body. <laughs> it's kind of gross, okay, actually. But I, I yes. <laughs> as, as a fellow grammar fiend, I, I completely agree. 
<laughs> well, and this is why also talking about being a grammar fiend, this is why when someone asks me if I take the whole Bible literally, I always say no. I say I take the literal parts literally and the figurative parts figuratively because that's the Perfect. right way to handle yeah. scripture. You know, David picked up five smooth stones means that David bent over with his body and grabbed five rocks with his hand. A land flowing with milk and honey is a metaphor for a rich bountiful land. You don't have to pull your boots on to walk through the land flowing with milk and honey because there's not real literal milk and honey there. Anyway, when you read John 10, uh, John chapter 10 in context, it is obviously chock full of metaphors and figures of speech. Verse six of John 10 even says this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them, just like a lot of people today still don't understand John 10, 27. Okay, so the context of John 10, 27 actually starts in John 9, and that is way too long for me to read to you. But if you've got your Bible out, you can follow along as I sort of summarize this. John 9 is this amazing, beautiful story of Jesus healing a man who was born blind. And of course, the Pharisees get their noses all out of joint about that. So the reason that the context starts uh, for chapter 10 starts in chapter 9 is that in the last couple of verses of chapter 9, it's made clear that Jesus is talking to these Pharisees who've got their noses all out of joint about Jesus healing the blind man. And chapter 10 just continues that conversation that's already going on between Jesus and those hacked off Pharisees. So chapter 10 opens with Jesus telling the Pharisees a little story about shepherds and sheep and thieves. And if you realize that Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, it reads very much like that, the the you are the man story that Dave, Nathan told David back in 2 Samuel 12. Only David got it and the Pharisees didn't. So you know, if you'll go back and read John uh, about nine forty through ten six, and read it through that that Nathan and David lens when you get a chance, it's really a fascinating parallel. But that's you know that's just a little land yet. All right. Anyway, the Pharisees don't get that Jesus is saying that they're the thieves and the robbers in this little story, but he uses some words and phrases that are instructive to us in understanding verse twenty seven. In verse three, he says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Okay, so Jesus is the true shepherd and his own sheep, you know, particular individuals, not everybody. He leads them out of sin and into salvation. Okay, and then you look at verse four. It says, and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Okay, still metaphoric sheep, us saved people following the metaphoric shepherd, Jesus, because we're new creatures in Christ who know our master. That's what he's talking about right there. And then verse five, it says a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This is like saying, okay, the world and sin and false teachers are calling to us, beckoning us. But because we're new creatures in Christ, we don't answer the world's call anymore. We only want to pay attention to Jesus and his word. So like I said, the Pharisees don't get it. So in verse 11, Jesus kind of shifts the metaphor a little bit. He's no longer the door of the sheepfold. Now he's the good shepherd. Again, some instructive phrases here that help us to understand verse 27. 
verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And really, that's the key verse to understanding verse 27. When Jesus talks about his sheep hearing his voice, this is really all he means. I know my own and my own know me. They follow me because they know me. So, you know, the Pharisee, Pharisees still don't get it and they're still ticked and they go off in a huff or whatever. Well, the next time they see Jesus at the temple, probably the next day or a few days later, they accost him again, demanding answers. And he reminds them of this sheep conversation that they just had the other day. He says, starting in verse 25, he says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So in other words, I told you I'm the Messiah and you didn't believe me. You've seen all these miracles and healings and you don't believe me. And you know why you don't believe me? Because you're not saved is basically what he's telling them. If you were, you'd know that I'm the Messiah. You'd believe me and you'd follow me. This is not about hearing God talk to you verbally or whisper something in your heart. This is about believing and knowing and understanding the things of Christ because you've been born again and you're a new creature in Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying the same thing that 1 Corinthians 2 says in verses 10 through 14. And go back and read that when you get a chance. I'm just going to read verse 14 to you. It says, the natural person, that's somebody who's not saved, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you're saved, all this God stuff, you get it because the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, enabling you to understand. If you're not saved, no Holy Spirit, and you don't get it. Amy, any thoughts on that? Uh, That was such an incredible lesson, Michelle. Thank you so much for that, especially the lesson on the literal and figurative. And (laughs) Michelle, you know, we we can't hear that enough. And as a figurative sheep myself, who does know God's voice every time I read scripture, I do agree with what you said. I often say that if I hear God speaking to me in that still small voice, it's because I've left my audio Bible on, which by the way, I literally often do. So, especially at night. (laughs) All right. Well, the next verse uh, that often gets twisted is one we talk a lot about on this program, and that is 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not allow a woman to preach. What does that mean? Well, precisely what it says. And yet... I know. I have heard this verse twisted in so many knots until it looks like a practice rope at a Boy Scout camp. You know, let's read the rest of this verse leading up to and right after for a little context. In fact, if you read the entire chapter or the entire book, for that matter, along with Second Timothy and Titus, uh, you're going to see that this is where uh, the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy about the structure of the church and the roles of the men and the women in it. Paul's letter is written to a man, Timothy, a pastor, who would use this letter to train his elders, also men, and subsequently his congregation. And by the way, ladies, Paul was not a chauvinist pig, as so many mockingly say today. I I have heard this myself from people. 
This new church that Paul was helping to structure was kinder to women than most people of that day were ever used to. So the the whole let the women learn was unheard of back then. Timothy and the elders would have the responsibility from here on out to make sure women are allowed to come into the church and to be taught the gospel. Absolutely groundbreaking. <clears throat> so here's what Paul is telling Timothy. Quote, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, ladies, if your hackles are up right now, this is your flesh reacting, not just to Paul, but to God himself. Remember, all scripture is breathed out by the Holy Spirit, God. God, through Paul, restricts women from serving in roles or teaching and or having spiritual authority over men. That means that we ladies are not allowed to be serving as pastors over men, which definitely includes preaching to them or teaching them publicly and exercising spiritual authority over them. Pretty clear, right? Well, Christians didn't really seem to have any problems with this until about, you know, the last hundred years or so. How is this verse being twisted today? Well, we know that many churches, and I'm putting churches here in bunny ears, have female pastors or women preachers or guest speakers teaching God's word from the pulpit on Sunday mornings when the church gathers for teaching for the sermon. And many of these churches have put women in leadership positions with men who are under the woman's authority in her position in the church. Why? Why is this happening? What acrobatics do they need to do to make this okay? Well, I'm going to start with the most outlandish way that I have heard this twisted. I actually had a male ministry leader where I used to work tell me that he really believes we misread the emphasis Paul was sharing with Timothy. So imagine with me him saying this. What if, he said, Paul really meant, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. You know, it, it's almost like saying, I don't, Tim, but that's just my opinion. You do you. Well, talk about putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Just unbelievable. Um, another way you might hear this passage commonly twisting in the wind. Some people might say, well, that was written in the first century when women were uneducated. But today we have seminary, right? And women can go and learn. So therefore, they should be able to teach. All right, but ladies, nowhere in that verse or anywhere else do we hear about a woman's educational status or, you know, men or women for that matter. The majority of Jesus's disciples, in fact, were not formally educated. Now, okay, another common twisting you might hear is, well, Paul only restricted the women of, you know, the Ephesian church where Timothy was teaching from, you know, teaching men. And that town was also, by the way, full of pagan worshipers. Or, well, Paul didn't like the female-led customs of the Ephesian idolaters, so he wanted to set that church straight. But again, ladies, Paul doesn't mention idolaters in that town. What he does mention is his reason why women should not be teaching men. And that happens in verse 13. I'll read it again. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now notice that line, that verse in scripture begins with the word for, for, you know, giving the cause of Paul's statement that women would not teach or have authority over men. Because Adam was created first, and then Eve, that's his reason. And Adam was not the one deceived, but it was the woman who was deceived. Now, ladies, this doesn't mean that women are more gullible or that we're all more easily deceived than men. That's not what he's saying here. God created Adam first, and then he created Eve to be a helper for Adam. The order of creation has universal application in the family and in the church, and that extends this teaching to all churches for all time. Now, we, you know, of course, live in a time right now in which women rule the roost as feminism has taken root in our culture, in our homes, and sadly, in many of our churches. And many women who profess Christ are falling into the trap of feminism these days, which is leading to their deconstruction so that they perhaps start out on the narrow path, but end up on the wide road to destruction. What do you think, Michelle? Well, you know what I think. I think exactly the same things that you just said. It's it's just amazing to me. Um, you know, again, if you if you put this verse in context, <laughs> we get so many, like you said, so many objections to the plain black and white nature of verse twelve that says, "I I don't allow women to preach or to ex- right. exercise authority over men," and people want to make it say. I do allow women to preach and to exercise authority over men. And then, and they'll, they'll try to come up with all of these reasons that you mentioned and many, many more. Many more. And yeah. That, that Paul might have said that or that God might have said that or whatever. And the reasons are right there in verses 13 and 14. It's right there. I mean, you have to want to be rebelling against this verse to not understand it. It just says what it says. And that's it. And we need yeah. to accept that and we need to submit to it. That's another problem is that we don't want to submit to scripture, especially the people who are rebelling against this verse. They don't want to submit to scripture. It, they don't, you know, they, they're like the people who said, we will not have this king reign over us. Um, they will not have scripture reign over them. So that's the basic problem right there. It's not that that scripture isn't clear. It's not that there might have been this reason or that reason or the other reason. It's that they want to rebel against scripture and they don't want to submit to it. So those, those are my thoughts. Exactly. You know, and one that we're going to hear, uh, this, you know, in the weeks ahead as, as we're, you know, coming up on Easter is, well, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a woman was the first to proclaim the risen Christ. <laughs> yes. That's she right. was not preaching. She didn't have a church. She didn't, you know, preach to men or teach them. She proclaimed as we all are to do. So just something else, uh, you know, just many, many reasons that, uh, people need to have that verse twisted to make it okay for them to sin. Absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, what's our next scripture, Amy? Well, there's so many. (laughs) That's why we're going to do a series, right? Uh, But the next verse uh, that we're going to cover tonight is John 14, 12, which says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. 
All right. Many um, charismatic teachers and AR teachers look to this verse to validate their teaching. They see it as proof text for the notion that present-day believers can perform miraculous signs and wonders even more spectacular than Jesus did himself. Unfortunately, ladies, this fixation on miracles removes the focus away from Jesus Christ and onto the men and women who claim to be able to do miracles like healings or even raising the dead, some of them are claiming. Again, we see this time and time again in these movements like the New Apostolic Reformation and the Word of Faith heresies. I'm going to put some links in our show notes today about those wicked apostate movements infecting churches with their sickness. The real power Jesus is telling his disciples about in this verse is the life-transforming power of the gospel, which includes the horrendous suffering and death that Jesus was about to endure and his glorious resurrection on a lost and dying world. You know, many people are looking for so much more than that, because that kind of power of the word of God is somehow not good enough, not sufficient for them. Instead, they long for God's power to manifest itself in and through their own experiences. They completely ignore God's finished work on on the cross, his powerful word, all of that. But ladies, the doctrine of sufficiency is a basic Christianity 101 tenet of our faith. Without that, you're going to wander off. And I will say that bad things happen to people who wander off. Michelle, anything to add? That is so true. And, you know, I was just thinking as, as you were talking about that, if you, if you really think about that verse, if, if the New Apostolic Reformation people and the Word of Faith people actually thought about that verse, it says, and greater works than these will you do because I go to the Father. And they thought about the supposed miracles that they themselves, you know, are able to supposedly manifest. You know, think about what Jesus did. He actually raised the dead. Have they yes. even done something equally as great? Never mind greater. Have they done something equally as great as that? I mean, we remember, uh, I think it was two years ago when that precious little girl that was the daughter oh, of someone yes. at Bethel died. And they spent like, I think like five days or something like that praying over this child's dead body that she would rise from the dead. And that never so happened. No. Yes, that was tragic. But they've never done. I mean, have they ever uh, multiplied a few fish and a few loaves of bread to feed 5000 people and, and just spoke that into existence or willed it into existence? No, they've never done anything like that. So it can't mean I mean, they've never done anything equally as great as Jesus did. So if they just thought about it logically, they know that that verse does not mean that they would do greater signs and wonders than Jesus did because a, they haven't and B it's impossible to do greater signs and wonders than Jesus did. I mean, what is greater than raising the dead, you know? And why did he do those signs and wonders to point people to his deity that he was God in the flesh and, Boy, I, you know, when when you think about that and when you think about the hucksters out there that are doing these alleged, you know, glitter dust falling from the ceiling right. and all all that kind of nonsense, it never points to Christ. It points to them right. and their church. And look how cool we are, you know, or, or, you know, look how cool my book is flying off the shelves because I yeah. had a personal, you know, I, I traveled to heaven, you know, all these weird things that people are doing in his name today, and he will not be pleased. 
No, he will not. And we will, you know, we're all going to have to stand in front of Christ one day and be judged. And some of these people, I fear for them. Well, a lot of people I do. But and I, you know, I'm I think about that very soberly for myself. But these people who are just blaspheming God by twisting his word and using it to their own advantage is just it's sickening. And when they stand in front of God, they're going to answer for that. So. Yeah. Well, for our last Twisted Scripture of the night, our listeners who are following along in their Bibles don't have to go very far because I'm going to take the next two verses in John 14, verses 13 and 14, because those are also often twisted by the same crowd that we're talking about, the NAR guys and the Word of Faith or Prosperity Gospel guys. But it's a slightly different twist. So Amy just did verse 12. This is John um, 14, 13 through 14, and this is what it says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the way you'll normally find this passage twisted is that all you have to do uh, to get whatever your greedy little heart desires is to attach in Jesus' name to your prayer for it. Like, in Jesus' name is the Platinum American Express card that will buy you whatever you want from God. Um, And actually, when I hear this being done, it's not even usually in a prayer that's asking God for something. It's usually all blended up and mixed together with all this decreeing and declaring stuff. And it comes out as a demand or a statement like, I am wealthy in Jesus name or my body is strong and healthy in Jesus name, you know, that kind of thing. There are so many things wrong with this that I'm really I'm not even sure which one to start with. Well, okay, let's start here. Okay, first of all, they leave out that very important second half of verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, that's a really important part that they've left out there. Is God glorified in Christ by your greed? by your fleshly desires, by the arrogance of you, a puny little worm demanding that God, the God of the universe, do your bidding? And what if the thing you're demanding is overtly sinful? Does that glorify God in Christ? Well, of course not. This verse doesn't say that you can demand whatever you want from God and he has to give it to you as long as you remember to attach that little phrase in Jesus' name to it. He says he'll do the things that you ask that will glorify God in Christ. And we'll we'll get to what that means in just a sec. The next problem with twisting this passage this way is that doing this commits three, count them, three different sins. The first sin you're committing when you demand things from God this way is idolatry, because you've created a false God in your mind who exists to do your bidding, whom you can order around like your God and he's your servant, and who has supposedly told you in these verses to regard him this way. Uh-uh, that is not the God of the Bible. That's an idol created by your wicked heart. Verse 20, uh, Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Boom, there you go. You've just committed idolatry when you when you do this. The second sin you're committing with this scripture twist is taking God's name in vain, which breaks the third com- of the Ten Commandments. Uh, and that's Exodus 20, verse 7. Taking God's name in vain is more than just saying, oh, my G-O-D or Lord or using the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word. It's also using the name of God cheaply 
and irreverently and for your own selfish purposes, rather than using his name biblically, reverently, and worshipfully. And the third sin you're committing when you twist scripture this way and use it this way, the third sin you're committing is witchcraft. Now, I know that's going to sound weird, but hear me out here, okay? If you're tacking the phrase in Jesus' name onto the demands that you're making of this false God that you've created as some sort of way to to harness some sort of supernatural power to make your words a reality, you're doing exactly the same things that witches and pagans do when they use incantations and cast spells. In Jesus' name, isn't the Christian version of abracadabra. It's not a magic word to make something materialize, okay? So what did Jesus mean when he said, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it? Well, first look at the context of John 14. Now, John 13 is the Last Supper. And then at the end of 13, Judas leaves to go betray Jesus. And Judas doesn't come back with the soldiers who arrest Jesus until chapter 18. So in between chapters 13 and 18, when Judas leaves and Judas comes back with the soldiers, you've got this long last bit of Jesus teaching and preparing the disciples for his death in chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. So in the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus is telling them, look, I'm I'm going away. You can't come with me. You're going to stay here and do, like Amy read in verse 12 earlier, you're going to stay here and do greater, farther reaching works than I did during my time on earth, because I am going to the Father. And then in that same vein of, of what he's saying there, he immediately says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He's talking to the disciples who are about to get this whole Christianity thing set up and kicked off. He's he's saying, as you guys are carrying out my mission to write scripture and plant churches and travel around preaching and teaching— You come to the throne of God as my servants working for me and whatever you ask me to do to help you with my mission that's within my will and my ways, I'm going to do it for you. So as disciples of Christ, does that apply to us too? Yes. When we're walking in obedience to God, carrying out the will of God in our lives, Whatever we ask him to do to help us carry out his mission that's within his will and his ways, he'll do it. That's a promise. Amy, anything to add? That is a wonderful promise and so perfectly said, Michelle. Uh, you know, and I don't even mind people ending their prayers with, in the name of the Lord, amen. Uh, you know, I do that myself. But, you know, when we pray for his will to be done to glorify him, uh, that is the right way. But when we use that uh, ending glibly or in a demanding way, we might as well say, in my name, just do it. You know, God is holy. He's almighty. He's high above. And uh, we just need to keep that in mind, a, a proper perspective of God. And uh, the, the only way I know how to do that is just to be in his will and in his word daily. Yeah, I completely agree. That's, that is the solution to all of this, is to be good students of God's word. 
Amen. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of A Word Fitly Spoken. We're going to have some more twisted scriptures next time. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on your favorite podcast platform, if you wouldn't mind. And stop by our website, awordfitlyspoken.life, to check out all of our other resources. And until next time, rightly handle the word of truth and walk worthy.